0: Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Today we are discussing La La Land, the third installment in our Damien Chazelle retrospective series leading up to his brand new film First Man coming out this November. This is your
1: co-host Corbin. I'm Alan from Chicago, once again back in the same room.
0: Yeah. Alan is back for fall break. What a surprise. I didn't even know until just a, well, I don't know, about two days ago. Yeah, I
1: think it was, I think I texted you Wednesday. I had a busy week, and I meant to text you earlier, but then I forgot.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: so that's how
0: that turned out. So it is Saturday, semi-early morning, depending on who you are mm-hmm. on a Saturday. And yeah, we're recording La La Land. Definitely looking forward to talking about this one, because oh, yeah. we did briefly discuss it... Um, when we talked about our uh, Oscar winners of whatever it was, 2016. Right. And we were just kind of gushing over this movie. I'm not going to hide anything about how, Oh, maybe I'm on the fence (laughs)
1: with this movie. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No,
0: this movie is amazing. We'll talk about it, but we were, we were like, someday we'd really like to review it and we're doing it.
1: Yeah. And I think I'm trying to remember this may have been 2017 list. But I know when I just got my new microphone, I went down and recorded the uh, the list of stuff that we were talking about uh, for like... I think no, it may have been like our... Yeah, it was our favorite movies that we watched that year. Uh, so it may... I can't remember if this was on it. But I know for the Oscar discussion, we had talked about it and I had... I think we were both on the same wavelength where it's like, yeah, this is a pretty great movie, I oh, guess. <laughs> so yeah, it's... Clearly, we've had... We both have a, a pretty big a pretty important history with this movie in one way or another. I know that we both have a bit different stories when it comes to this, but uh, definitely something that is pretty important to us regardless. And I did see it in
0: theaters at a second run theater. Actually, I didn't get to see it with its first run. Everybody in my town, in my college, everyone was gushing about this movie, talking about it. You have to see it. Why do I have to see it? You just have to see it. Okay. So I finally did get to see it when it came to the second run theater that we had in our town. And apparently Alan really wanted to show it to me
1: for the first Uh, time. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I remember right when I finished watching this movie, I scoured the internet wondering when is the steelbook going to go on sale. Because I knew that I wanted the steelbook. And I was just waiting for it to pop up for pre-order off of, I think, Best Buy is where I was looking Mostly. So, I go ahead and
0: see it with my girlfriend for her birthday. It was her pick. And then later that night when we got home, I texted Alan and told him, you know, briefly my thoughts, that I saw it. Yeah, he didn't text me back for a full hour. (laughs) He was mad at me and he finally gave me this curt
1: message back yep. about, well, you're watching it with me when I'm back in town. Yep. <laughs> I do remember that. I remember I had said that and you said, like, well, I watched it with uh, with my girlfriend for her birthday. And I was like, dang it, Corbin, now I can't be mad at you. Yes, that is
0: right. You, I did explain. I was like, I didn't just go see this by myself. Right, And you were like,
1: Okay, well, all right, I'm giving you a pass. Right, right. I remember, yeah, we had talked about it because I, I had stated that we have to watch it in your theater room mm-hmm. together oh, yeah. because this is something that uh, would be amazing to watch there. So I remember, yeah, that was definitely something that I was just like, oh, Corbin. And then you told me that it was both for your girlfriend. I was like, now I can't even be mad. Now I'm mad that I can't even be mad. Yeah, and it wasn't even, an,
0: I, I'm pretty sure I saw La La Land before Whiplash. I'm not really sure it wasn't that far apart like how many minutes. Right. But regardless, I don't think I really knew like too fully. I didn't know who Damien Chazelle was and I definitely had never heard of his first film. I kind of wasn't really putting it together that Whiplash and La La Land were made by the same person. Right. I'm sure I did understand it, but especially now that we're doing the retrospective, I could really see the progression of his work, his love of jazz and how he, that influences
1: his stories right so i have a bit of an interesting story personally for this movie uh so of course we'll talk about the fine details of the movie when we get to that part here in a little bit but at the time when this movie came out so okay i watched this movie from day one the first day that it was announced i watched the imdb page slowly update as more things about it came out because i remember watching whiplash and was being kind of blown away with this basically first-time director uh, in terms of getting his movie out there and being as popular as it was. And I was very impressed. And I was just like, well, what else has he done? And then I realized, and I saw that La La Land was on the table for him to make uh, this, new, this new movie, essentially. And so I watched this thing for months. And I was just like, I don't know if it's going to be good or bad. I don't care. I just want to see it because Damien Chazelle was a very interesting director to me. And he seems like the kind of director that is... Going to be another like Christopher Nolan that really takes film seriously, but uh, the American audience really just anybody just loves because his eye for film is so interesting. So I was watching him for a long time and then and then it finally came home around Christmas. and we my uncle and my cousin and I went to go see it and they were sold out. I think it was a Saturday, it may have been a Friday or Saturday night, and it was sold out the first day. And, or no, it was sold sort out of for that time. And I said, I'm seeing this regardless. So I went back home and bought tickets online, three of them, and spent probably about 35 bucks just so us three could go see it from my own pocket. And I was just like, "I regardless, I'm going to see it anyways. And so we did end up getting to go see it, thankfully. And I remember walking out and I'm pretty sure I bought the soundtrack and started scouring for things after that, after I'd seen it um so that's part part of the story and then the other part of the story uh is more of the fact that at the time I was dating a girl and no more than maybe a couple weeks after I got to see this movie we had broken up and we had dated for like three years and so this movie comes out and being the movie that it was and we'll get into specifics and I'll kind of explain the story as we go along um seeing the ending as it was was something that I had never really experienced before in the theater because of how the movie ended and kind of also comparing that to my own relationship that had just recently ended. It was very, very interesting, something that I had never experienced and has, and have yet to experience since. So, yeah, when we did finally see it, uh, when I finally saw it,
0: the second time with Alan, uh, it was a really great experience, uh, especially in the theater room. It was much more, um, in the theater, it was great. But then in the theater room, it was really nice to just just get to actually enjoy it that way. And I have, I believe I've returned to it once since with my girlfriend. So this would be my fourth time watching it. And I did watch it one and a half times, I almost got to watch the watch it fully again with the director's commentary, but I got so busy, I missed like the last 45 minutes or so. But right. uh, from what the commentary was, it was with uh, Chazelle and Justin Hurwitz. Very insightful. I highly recommend the commentary if you want to learn more about this movie.
1: Right. And I've seen this movie, oh geez, because uh, I watched it once. Actually, you no, know, I got to see it twice in theaters. I watched it once with my uncle and my cousin, and then I later got to watch it with my friends back at college when I went back for the next semester. Uh, so I got to see it twice in theaters, and that was quite the treat. And then so that's two times, and then I bought it on Blu-ray and watched. I'm pretty sure I watched it the day I got the Blu-ray, um, and then I watched it one more time with one of my friends because he wanted to see it. And then I know I showed my family, and then we watched it. So this is my seventh time seeing this movie. Um. Yeah. Here's the thing that I've realized: I'm a huge fan of Chazelle films. They are, in my mind, they're very, very rewatchable, and that's part of the reason why I've been kind. I've been very high in regards when it comes to Chazelle because his work, for whatever reason, hits a, hits a chord with me that is something that not many other films do. And so, yeah, I've seen this a lot, uh, to say the least. At least since it's come out. And despite my final
0: thoughts and recommendation for Whiplash, which I recommend you go listen to both of our thoughts on that, that's out now. The ending of Whiplash I have been thinking about frequently since we reviewed that movie and since we just watched it. And I have to say of all the films I've seen, I've seen a few thousand, honestly, throughout my lifetime. The ending of Whiplash is probably one of the greatest endings to a film of all
1: time. Yep, and I can definitely attest to that. Uh, It's one that a lot of people have said that, yeah, this is one of the best. One of the best endings of all time because the movie does a really good job at building up to the ending. Of course, you can listen to those thoughts in the podcast, but yeah. So I was excited
0: to see what Chazelle would do with La La Land because Guy and Madeline is nearly fantasy with Mm -hmm. how different scenarios happen whiplash is like extreme realism it's just pure realism with everything it does and i was gonna say okay la Land is probably gonna be a really nice blend of both of those it's gonna have this romantic fantasy element to it but it's also going to be grounded in reality thankfully it didn't disappoint yes that's it i was interested to see what chazelle could further do because this is his third film his third film in general, but his third film, once again, about jazz. Right,
1: which is so interesting.
0: And I will say I am glad that the fourth film we're reviewing this year isn't about jazz, though, because I'm excited to see what Chazelle can do different, like what new story can he tell. And I'm, I'm really glad to see that.
1: Yeah, and it's kind of funny because uh, when doing some research for this movie, come to find out, Guy and Madeline was kind of like the beta version of what would be La La Land. He had this idea for La La Land when he before, I think it was before he actually began making Guy and Madeline, but because of what it took to create La La Land, he couldn't feasibly do it. Not until after he got, after, after he made Whiplash and was able to get a lot more producers in the studio on board and get a bigger budget. But for a while, he, this has been, this is his, original dream this is essentially what he is his entire career has kind of been building up to at this point is making la la land his dream of a film that he's wanted to make for ages which of course we're going to we're going to talk about it here but it's just interesting to see the progression of a director begin with just a student film which for what it is it's quite impressive for a student film to whiplash which is this super intense psychological thriller drama And now we're talking about a romantic fantasy, all centered around jazz, of course, except for this new one, First Man. But it's interesting that he's been able to do this in in such a short-ish amount of time. Oh,
0: yeah, it's really cool. I mean, he's a wonderkind, clearly, with his craft. It's a dream come true. And even when he was working on Whiplash, I know he approached J.K. Simmons and said, hey... Do you want to do, like, a small walk-on part in this movie, La La Land, that I'm going to be gearing up right after Whiplash is over? And J.K. said yes, so I didn't know that. I learned that watching the commentary. He said, I asked him during Whiplash if he would be in La La Land. Right, right. Well, Alan, are you ready to give him the plot? Uh Yeah, let's do it.
1: La La Land opens on a jammed L.A. highway. To seemingly pass the time, the folk join together and sing a song about pursuing dreams in L.A., we meet our two main characters, Mia and Sebastian, as Mia holds up traffic while practicing for an audition she has later that winter day. They don't know it yet, but eventually they will come together in a relationship that will change their lives forever as they pursue their dreams. Mia works at a coffee shop on the Warner Brothers lot and is, a, is an and inspired to be an actress after being inspired by her aunt and her many stories and travels. Sebastian is a jazz artist or jazz pianist who is trying to get his name out there and survive with overdue bills and struggling to keep a steady job. After a record deer turned out to be a scam, Seb has been and still is picking up the pieces. He gets a job, gets his old job back, uh, gets his old job back playing piano at the restaurant run by J.K. Simmons, which he previously lost due by because he deviated from the provided set of tunes and started playing his own freeform jazz. After night of partying with her friends, Mia walks home after her car is towed and comes across Seb as he begins once again to deviate from the set list and plays his own and plays his own jazz set. And once again, loses his job as at Simmons's restaurant. Seb and Mia meet up once again, but later at a party. When they get and, at a party, and they get lost searching for their cars as they strike up a song and tap dance the night away, or at least until Mia gets a call from her boyfriend Greg. The next day, Seb shows up at her work, and they talk after she is off, and finds out that she doesn't like jazz. He takes her to her, He takes her to a favorite club of his and explains that jazz is dying. He offers to take her to see Rebel Without a Cause that is playing at the old theater in town after learning that she had got a callback for one of her auditions. Mia accepts, but then forgets about her scheduled date with Greg and his brother who had just got in from, uh, I think it's, uh, I think it's Germany, but I guess it doesn't really matter where it comes from. Mia goes to the date, but hears Seb's song on the radio and decides that she, and decides to leave the date after realizing that she had more, more or less set him, uh, set him up, and then felt bad for doing so, so she leaves because she kind of realizes that there's something special about him. So she leaves and meets up with, with Seb at Rebel Without a Cause at the Rialto Theater. The two almost share a kiss before the film burns up. So the two had the two have a good idea and head to the same planetarium that that Rebel Without a Cause was set in and fall in love as they dance to the stars and sh- and finally share their kiss. A while passes, and the two and the two are in a relationship now. Mia begins writing a one-woman play. Seb joins a jazz fusion band after being asked by the legendary John Legend. This gives Seb a steady job and Mia her own chance to begin freely pursuing what she loves. But after seeing Seb's group, The Messengers, live, Mia begins to wonder if what Seb is really want, if this is what Seb really wanted, or if he's just doing it out of obligation after some time the two finally get a chance to sit down and have a nice dinner after seb heads out on tour or before seb heads out on tour what begins as a nice night turns sour however when when mia first firstly begins wondering if seb is really liking what he's doing in which seb responds saying that he that she probably liked it better before he joined the messengers because he was below her mia leaves in a rage and things get worse as the next day mia want, or as the next time they are together well Things get worse the day of Mia's play. However, when not only is Seb unable to join due to a photo sh- due to a photo shoot that he was un- that he had forgot about, but the play itself was a disaster. Very few people showed up, leaving Mia in debt to the theater as she cannot pay it back. Seb shows up as she's walking out, and at that-, that point she breaks up with him. Mia heads home to refigure things out and hopefully go back to school and start her life over again. That is until Seb gets a call from the casting agent about Mia's play. Seb finds Mia's house as she stated, the one next to the library, and gives her the news. At first she refuses, but, Seth, but Seb convinces her otherwise, calling her a baby and how she needs to take this role if she really wants to pursue what she'd been dreaming all along. At the audition, Mia was asked just to tell a story, as the story that they are writing hasn't exactly been written yet, but they're going to write it off of the main character, whoever gets the lead role. Mia recounts her original inspiration of her aunt and to the casting directors. Afterwards, Seb and Mia have their final conversation outside the planetarium. Not knowing what the future will hold, they express their love for one another as the movie fades to summer once again five years later. Mia's audition got her lead role and is finally back from Paris. Seb is able to get at his jazz club up and running. The two, however, live completely separate lives. Mia is married and has a child, and Seb lives by himself in a small apartment. One night, on their own, on their way to a party, Mia and her husband decide to skip it and get something to eat, and accidentally come across Seb's club. Seb and Mia make eye contact as Seb plays the solo, their theme song, City of Stars. The movie recounts the many memories that they've shared, and what could have been if they had stayed together. But this is not the reality. They never got married, and they never had a kid, and they never bought a house. That was all a pipe dream. After Seb's solo... Mia and her husband get up to leave, but Mia looks back one last time and the two make eye contact and give a little smile before parting ways to live their lives separately, but still holding on to their experience, knowing that they helped each other pursue their dreams and success as credits roll. So
0: the movie opens in a very classic way, and that's just how this whole movie will be. It will be a very classic love letter to old Hollywood musicals And that's kind of the overall meta-narrative of this movie is traditional old musicals like this one kind of emulates, but it still does something new, which is a conversation that Keith and Seb have about how can you be a, a revolutionary if you're just going to be a traditionalist. And clearly that is what Chazelle is doing here. He is... This we haven't seen a movie like this in a really long time, especially something so classic looking. And but nevertheless he does something really new with it, and I would say grounding it in realism because those older movies follow the same pattern, but the guy and girl, you know, always end up together or it's just very romanticized in such a way whereas this gives a more realistic approach to that style of filmmaking.
1: Right, right. And this opening is also at the same time. Very impressive because it's, I think it's about five, six minutes long and it's just one whole musical number Mm -hmm. and it never breaks. It never cuts away to anything else. It's always one very long continuous shot and they had to shut down, I think it was the 110 and the 105 and they were like 110 feet up in the air uh, to film this and I mean, I don't know how long it took them to get it, but I think it took them at least a couple of days, long days of acting to get it right. But, yeah, all shot on film in cinemascope with the a lot of colors, a lot of very traditional like uh, atmosphere and things that are in the movie that are very akin to what uh, what things that have come before it. you yeah, I don't think this has been done not a musical like this at least.' probably since the sixties, which is so interesting that a movie like this somehow capture the american audience and such a, in the way that it did because in a lot of and what you typically think is that oh it's an older looking movie why would i go see that but a lot of people apparently found it struck a chord with a lot of people and that got, got a lot of attention as well and it was funny because the first time i saw this
0: i didn't believe this movie for some reason i don't probably because i thought it was a period piece just like oh the old musicals came out you know 50s 60s i thought that's how this would be but no it's present day Mm -hmm. and so i was so surprised when i first saw the opening shot i'm like wait a minute those are not 60s cars those are modern day cars and so that really threw me off at first and my uh, experience for the first time in the theater the audio in the theater was off really from the from the movie and it was bad and I could barely hear anything and I was so frustrated because at first I didn't blame it on the theater I thought they mixed this movie horribly how did they make such a mistake and then I texted you about it and you said oh I could hear it just fine it Mm -hmm. must have been your theater and so then I finally figured it out and then when we watched it on home video, I was like, ah, okay, this yeah. is much better.
1: Yeah, oh, that would Well, that would really get on to me if it was off. Oh, it was. Oof. I could barely hear anybody singing at all. <sighs> oh, great.
0: And maybe they fixed it because, or maybe I just got used to it. I don't remember. But regardless, this whole opening sequence was actually, at a
1: time, not going to be in the movie. That's right. Yeah, they, I know at one point, they, uh... They had gotten a studio, I think it was Focus Features, and they were like, okay, well, we'll make the movie, but you have to do a bunch of different things. You have to change the opening, because that's too big. You can't have it the way that you want it. Uh, you have to change the jazz artist Seb to a rock musician, <laughs> and you have to change the ending. And <laughs> Demi Chazelle was like, how about no, and then walks away from uh, that studio which, in my mind, was a very smart decision. But I, I feel like he would have walked off with anybody if they had made those kind of demands.
0: Well, and the other thing was Chazelle also really wanted an overture. Okay. He really wanted an overture at the beginning. But he realized that an overture and then a long opening musical number would have been too much. Right. Would have just not worked together to have two types of that sequence Right up against each other right in the beginning of the movie. So at, they did screen the movie without this opening. And then they they might have screened it with an overture and without this opening. And they also had a screening. Um, they also had a cut of the movie where it came down and focused um it had the shot coming right down onto Ryan Gosling's character Sebastian and then it cut over to Mia and then it went into the musical number okay instead of the musical number then cutting to them and then continuing on from there so they were really really wondering what do we do even Justin Hurwitz didn't even want that um pan down from the sky he said let's just do a clean fade in and eventually the producer was like i really think we can do it would just be really good to pan down. Right. And it wasn't a real sky because you can't just sh- shoot the sky like yeah that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it works really well. And so this whole opening, because they talked about it for quite a bit, was oh, like, sure. what do we do? And then eventually they're like, we can't cut. This is a great way to open the movie. It brings audiences in. It's engaging. Plus, it's so well done with this long take. Oh, yeah. And it would be very difficult to accomplish. Too much work to throw away. And I'm really glad they kept it.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's kind of, of course, as to this dreamlike aesthetic to this movie for at least its first hour and a half or so. Oh, it does. uh, Because this is L.A. This is kind of more or less. This is is La La Land. This is what a lot of people go there to aspire their dreams. This is what they imagine. Of course, the movie takes that and goes... Well, not necessarily, and then Mm -hmm. kind of goes on to explain things. But here's another funny thing. Did you notice one of the songs from Guy Madeline on a Park Bench was playing when it was kind of painting past all the cars and all the different radio stations were playing? Was it? Yeah. It was the first song that, uh, I guess, Madeline sings. Oh, wow. This movie, the Park Bench song.
0: That's so cool. I did not
1: notice it. But later
0: on, they call it out when Sebastian and Mia are walking on the studio lot. You can see a poster for Guy and Madeline. Mm-hmm. And also when Mia is in the cafe, when Sebastian comes to meet her, uh, there's a piece from Whiplash playing over the speakers. Right. And I didn't notice any of this before, but it's cool because in Justin Hurwitz, who is the composer and kind of the right man hand. Right man hand. <laughs> Justin Hurwitz, who is the composer and right hand man of Chazelle. Right. They were the ones on the commentary. Uh, They were talking about how, in their minds, they kind of like to think these three movies exist in the same universe, not connected in really any strong way. Right. But regardless, maybe that piece from Whiplash, that's how we can see that guy in Madeline. We can see that coming together that way. Right. And uh, they also said uh JK Simmons character in Chazelle's mind and he kind of had this little running joke where this is years after Whiplash JK has become this old man who is just tired of uh, jazz now and he just wants them to play show tunes or like Christmas carols, I guess it is, in the lounge. And it's just kind of a funny thing. Uh, No, that's not definitive, of course, but in Shazell's Mind, he just pictures that's how Fletcher would turn out. That's
1: what I was wondering because I was thinking when we meet J.K. Simmons for the first time, I was like, that would be funny if it's the same guy from Mm -hmm. Whiplash. It's still Fletcher, but he's just moved on and now he's in this restaurant that he owns. He's a manager of this restaurant and he just can't stand jazz because of what happened to him at Schaefer. I just think that would be really funny. Of course. Yeah, it's not definitive, but it is just kind of fun to theorize about uh, with, with his character because he is just so hard and whiplash as we talked about. And then here he's still kind of that way, but is also rather sympathetic compared to what he used to be. Oh, it's all, it's all kind of, all kinds of funny to think about. It really is.
0: And uh, I ha- I won't tell you everything I learned on the commentary because I can't remember everything. <laughs> but also, I want you to just listen and discover it, listeners, because I do highly recommend this commentary. It is very insightful. But they do talk a lot about uh, musical choices, editing choices. There was a lot of editing choices that
1: they made. Yeah. they at- it's, mm-hmm. It took them almost a year to edit this movie.
0: Yeah, because they were really... I'm kind of struggling, like, how do we put some of these scenes in a sequence that will flow really well in a musical? Because with a musical, it it is all about the flow and pacing and certain scenes. They're like, well, this scene was actually before this or this scene. Like when we first see Sebastian and his sister, he was like, that was that was originally after he had met Mia. Right. And he's like, you'll notice his brown shirt um, from the from the Skyway to the Van Beek. Then when he comes home, he has a different shirt on, and then it cuts back to him at the piano, and he's got his brown shirt back on. Right. And he's like, I was afraid that would totally throw audiences out of it, and it didn't. Yeah. um, But just little things like that, like the shot of Mia lying on her bed after singing with her friends and then coming out in the dress, that was supposed to be – that was going to lead into um, the song with her friends coming into the room, just different things like that. They made a lot of interesting – editing choices that i think paid off they did the right things Um, right even scenes where mia was i think just like driving along and looking at the closed rialto theater or writing different things down they shot that like after they had pretty much wrapped up everything They they had to like go back and well specifically when she was coming home um Telling Sebastian, I miss you. I haven't talked with you in months. Mm-hmm. That was way after shooting. so And her hair was different. So she had to wear a wig. Oh, good. And they had to color correct different things. Right. It's just cool tidbits
1: like that. You That's learn. so interesting. Yeah. They, I mean, it, clearly, Damien Chazelle has taken a lot of time. And it, clearly, this movie has a lot of passion to it. And I know that when they were casting for Mia, uh, they had saw Emma Stone, a, a Broadway musical. And that's kind of how they met. And then they met at a coffee shop not long after that. And Emma Stone was just like, this guy is so passionate about this project that she wanted to be a part of it. And then Brian uh, Gosling is a bit of a different story. He met him at a bar. And I think it was also in New York. They think both of these were in New York. But, yeah, I mean, it's clear that Damien Chazelle has a clear passion for this. Once again, this is the movie that his, as for right now, his entire career is kind of built up to. This is like his magnum opus at his current state is to make a well, La La Line, which is exactly what uh guy Madeline had taken a lot of those ideas. And then whiplash was just getting him the, like basically the bridge from guy Madeline to make an actual full length movie that t- requires a big budget. Yeah. It's so interesting to see this guy who is just so passionate about this project and kind of uh, is telling the truth when he says that you make something that you're passionate about and people will, flock to it that is definitely true and it's kind of funny to think emma
0: stone and ryan gosling have been on the scene i would say longer than chazelle has yeah and they're definitely known names but i even after chazelle won a few oscars and got some nominations for whiplash which is pretty impressive for your very first like mainstream theatrical film oh yeah oh yeah and It's kind of funny because it's like, in a way, it feels like they're probably taking a chance on this new director. But at the same time, he's like, oh, my last movie, my first movie actually won three Oscars, got five nominations. Right. And wow, did this really pay off coming onto this movie because 14
1: nominations with six wins. And that's like one of the three because you've got Titanic and All About Eve. Well, the only other two movies that have ever gotten that many nominations, like the nominations for basically every category that's (laughs) possible for a feature length movie like this. And I mean, yeah, Titanic won more at 11, but at the same time, still very impressive, especially for a third time director. This is no, this is no James Cameron. This is he this is a brand new director right. who like fresh but essentially fresh out of college no more than maybe a few years. I'm pretty sure he won two Oscars like in a
0: row that night. I think so. Where yeah. he it was like for best song or something and then for something or I can't remember, but I just remember like Damien Chazelle, come on up and then he goes sits back down like Damien Chazelle, come yep. back up. And that was crazy considering uh Christopher Nolan still hasn't won the Oscar. Mm-hmm. And uh, Leonardo DiCaprio finally just won his Oscar and Wonderkind. Damien Chazelle is like oh what I only have like 20 Oscars between right. all of my movies and all two
1: of them that are made two to the of Oscars. them
0: so this year I'm expecting first man to get nominated for best documentary best foreign film I'm expecting it to be nominated in every category
1: I would not be surprised I mean obviously we haven't seen it yet it's coming out relatively soon actually in a couple weeks I'm excited. I'm really excited to see because, once again, this is not a movie that is his normal thing. It's not jazz as the last three were. It's just something very, very different. Ryan Gosling is a still the main character, but it's more like Apollo 13-esque than it is about jazz. It's not uh, as, I guess I wouldn't say it's not as original as anything else, but it's very different than what he's used to doing these last few movies. So it's interesting to see that he's like pushing himself to do new things, not just stick around jazz the whole time.
0: Coming back to the character of Mia, we see she is an aspiring actress, and she's giving this really great uh, performance during her audition, but she gets interrupted. Right. And I learned that actually happened to Ryan Gosling. Uh, he was sharing a story with them, and he said, oh, yeah, I was giving this you know, emotional audition, and they just totally interrupted by right. somebody comes in and takes a message. And so she also says, okay, we have to put that in right. the movie. So that was That was kind of funny how that worked out and connected to real life.
1: Right. And I know that uh, Emma Stone also had similar things happen to her. And so her character that we see in the final film is really based off of her own experience. Because she herself left high school at 15, Mm -hmm. moved down with her mom in Hollywood so she could become an actress. Wow. And look at where she's at now. And yeah, this story, of course, ties into her character that is in Whiplash. She leaves and goes to Hollywood to be an actress and of course by the end we get this we get to see that progression as as how it all comes about yeah both these characters are kind of based off of the actual real life events of the actors that play them but I think Mia's especially is very very interesting because it's it's so interesting to see someone's more or less real character come out in this film yeah, it it definitely
0: is, and I think it's it's definitely one of those rags to riches type stories for both of them. But it's so well told, and it's yeah, yeah, so organic. And uh, I don't know if that's really Chazelle's story though, because his first movie had some pretty uh, big people helping him out with it, right? And then his second movie, you know, five Oscars and everything, right, right. So he's he's done amazing. I don't know what college he went to, but that's probably the college I should have gone to. Oh, Harvard. Oh, okay. Well, there we go. Because him and Justin Hurwitz were roommates. Mm -hmm. uh, And um, the guy who is the 80s cover band, um, he was also their roommate in college. Yeah. And it's funny because they actually started a band together.
1: Okay. Because I know that Chazelle, I learned this. We we talked about what instrument he played, I think, in Guy Madeline. Yeah. He played the drums. Which makes a lot of sense for Whiplash.
0: Right. He did play the drums and they're talking about how Justin Hurwitz like had him compete for somebody else to be able to just get in their band. Yeah. And they kind of had this band in college together for a while with the lead singer of this 80s cover band. And then as soon as uh, Chazelle and Hurwitz left the band, the that band like blew up. Really? In, uh there was this massive bidding war with, like, Kanye West and a bunch of wow. other massive labels for these people. And then they just became these sensations. They had, like, billboards in Times Square, flown out to Hollywood, became these big artists. <laughs> One, and so Hurw- funny. Once Chazelle and Hurwitz left, and he's like, we could barely pay our rent. And, like, the band was, like, this massive, you know, right. rock like band now or whatever. I don't remember what kind of music it was. But they're like, well, we don't really feel bad now because... Look at where we're at, <laughs> but it's cool they're able to bring their friend right. back for this scene. They're like, we got to bring him in for this scene. He'd be great,
1: right? And I mean, it's if it's clear now, uh, a lot of basically almost everything from Chazelle's movies are based off of something that happened in his life or somebody. Like we mentioned, Emma Stone, her character is more or less built around her entire person as she her, as she grew up. A lot of events in this movie, a lot of events in Whiplash, and I would assume a lot of events in Guy and Madeline are all kind of built off of his experience, and he's just expressing that onto the screen, which is also, once again, very, very interesting. This is not something new, per se, but it is very interesting to see a director do this and still get a lot of recognition for it. Yes.
0: So everything I am loving in this movie so far, it's riding so high, and mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, this is riding on a wave so high, don't let it come crashing down. And it doesn't – I don't don't think I'm building up to that Yeah. because I'm not. I will say the only thing that I feel like is almost a little too much is at the very end of the Somewhere in the Crowd party where it's been a really wild fun time, super well done. But then we get like – it just like spins and cuts to these massive fireworks and it almost just felt like too much for right. me. Maybe I'm being – that's probably a nitpick but it was like fireworks, like massive fireworks, what? Right.
1: Well, okay. <laughs> think, think about it this way uh, because – Mia, the whole. Game. So the whole song is about you'll find that lucky someone who will make you big by going to these parties, mm-hmm. right? And then at one point, Mia subs away after not really being able to connect with anybody, and sings to herself in the mirror. It's just like, is that true? Uh, it, it, am I just going to live this life where it's not all that special, but I have to just be lucky? And then she walks out, and it's once again this dream. Uh, about her life in Hollywood and how there's like explosions and everything, and how it's more or less just saying that, uh, oh, it'll happen, it'll happen, absolutely. And if, of course, it I guess kind of does because at one point she says in this in her little solo that she has, uh, maybe there's just something that is just waiting to be found that I have to search for for myself, which ends up being Sebastian, as we know, mm. and now he is able to rekindle that though I guess pers- get her to pursue her own dream. And so having this and then that contrast the whole this whole song is really about contrast between different ideas when it comes to what really was going to happen in the movie and what uh what Emma Stone's character thinks is thinks probably should she should look for versus what everybody else is telling her.
0: Sure. yeah, I, I can definitely see that. It's kind of symbolism. Oh yeah, how yeah. it's used that way. It just almost felt too big, I guess. In the moment, watching the movie, right. but it's really not that big of a deal. The other question that I have though is, her car gets towed. How are her friends getting home?
1: Pretty sure her friends found other people, <laughs> probably. But that's, I was like, that's what I've always just assumed. I
0: was like, what about her friends? Because
1: mm-hmm. I'm assuming that if they had, if her friends had stuck around and not found anybody else, they would have been with her when her car was towed. But mm-hmm. my guess is they found other people to go home with in this party. I'm sure that's probably what happened. Oh, I'm definitely sure that's how it is. It just it just struck
0: me. I'm like, wait, she's abandoning her friends Mm -hmm. and they're not even gonna get home. (laughs) But and I will compliment the way that we cut back to Sebastian's character is really abrupt and unexpected. Right. But then the way it loops back around to how him and Mia get together, it's to me it was very seamless. Oh yeah. I thought it was so well done because it a certain point, you don't even really think about Mia because you're just invested in um, Sebastian. But then when you come back and see them together at that same little meeting at the the musical place, very well done, very yeah. seamless. Right,
1: and I do like how we kind of get an explanation as to what happened, but we don't really get a definitive explanation. Mm-hmm. We get this line of, "Yeah, well, I was Shanghai, and then yeah, his I sisters, yeah, and his sisters just like we all knew he was shady from the start, and you did too." It kind of leaves us to believe that Sebastian had some kind of record deal with this man, and then turns out he was a scam artist and basically took everything, at least money wise, from Sebastian, which is why he's living in this place with overdue bills mm-hmm. and no car insurance. It's interesting. There's a lot of these this kind of a thing in this movie where things they they express things, but they don't really take the time to explore it. But if you really pay attention, you can kind of pick up and put together those pieces to figure out. Okay, here's the whole story. In this instance, uh, this man at least from what I understand was a scam artist, but, and his persona was more of, he's going to help Sebastian become big, which of course he doesn't, at least not with him. Right. And in the original script, there was going to be
0: quite a few sequence, like quite a few scenes during this whole time where it shows Sebastian getting mad at people, texting in theaters and yelling at the theater manager. And it would just show that he's kind of this irritable person he just feels like he's this underappreciated, under unrecognized artist. Right. And he's just kind of ticked off at the world. Thinks, you know, everybody's like missing out on all kinds of stuff. And But this scene is so well delivered. We get all of that without having to see all of that. Right. That's why Chazelle said, okay, we don't even need to film it. That was just in the original script. He said Gosling delivered that right there in that scene.
1: Right. Right, and I do like his sister, where she doesn't really care. She grabs the stool. I think that Charlie, or I think one of the one of the old time jazz artists used, and she's sitting on it. She's like, "Whatever, it's not that yeah. big of a deal." And Sebastian's just like, "Don't sit on that, you know." And of course, we, this stool comes back like, later at the very end of the movie when he gets uh, when he does get his own place. Uh, but yeah, this entire opening, we of course we get this idea that Sebastian's huge about jazz, and he understands that is dying, and he doesn't really want to die. He wants to invigorate this flame of jazz once again that's his that's his dream he wants to get his own club he wants to invigorate jazz again into the culture because it is a very important thing as he explains later on in this conversation a few scenes later with uh, with Mia and this, as they go to the bar that is one of his favorites yeah it's and then of course we have a, a as long as we have jazz we also have a lot of social commentary as well about just kind of like this, not just the current state of Hollywood, but also about the current state of those going to see movies in, that come from Hollywood. Because mm-hmm. they're saying there's a scene that they wrote out, they wrote out, but kind of still is incorporated the ideas into the final script. Uh, people just not really caring what they're seeing, right. and then you've also got Hollywood, which just kind of pumps out stuff. Like, uh, almost as if it's a machine, and the movie brings this up. And of course, when they're walking down the Warner Brothers lot, you see the cut, the, you see the two uh, actors in the background that they're filming a the movie, and then the camera cuts and they just turn around and start just screaming at each other. And it's so interesting to see Chazelle uh, pull from his own experience and talk about this and something that you normally wouldn't see in a movie. Or if it is bringing this up, it isn't doing it in such a dreamlike fashion. But at the same time, This is something that totally fits within the movie because, once again, it's about fantasy, but it also doesn't shy away from reality. And that's the whole point of the movie is to bring you in with this fantasy and then present you with the reality. And yeah, Chagel is definitely making
0: that uh, commentary with this. I can't find exactly where it is in my notes, but there is a really poignant scene where he's saying that most movies are... Just Cinema has just really been degraded mm-hmm. over the years. It's not about the story. It's not about the acting anymore. It's not really about the talent. It's more, mostly just about the visual effects. It's about just kind of sucking people in and getting their money and giving them something really trashy where the people who worked on it almost didn't really care about it. It's just for the paycheck. Right. And this movie is the exact opposite of that. And I love that because it's, it's pure filmmaking it's pure storytelling. It's not doing it for the money clearly because these movies weren't massive blockbusters, uh, in any, any sense of, uh, financial terms. I would say they weren't opening in 4,000 theaters and you know, right. Oh Mm -hmm. man, it's just breaking the box office and whatnot. They were extremely popular despite, you know being uh the, they weren't trying to be these big blockbuster movies they're just filmmaking because right. Chazelle loves storytelling he loves what he's doing and people appreciate that and that that makes me really excited for
1: the future of film if we have young directors doing right. that right right and that's kind of the big thing too is that indie film is of course this isn't really an independent film right. but indie film just in general has a lot of passion to it if you especially if you find the right movie uh, and I know one movie that is right off the top of my head is creesha by uh, Trey Edward Schultz, which you may know him as doing uh, It Comes at Night, which is more, which is the one that actually kind of made him who he is today and made him a bit more popular. creesha was his first movie, and I've seen it twice, and I would love to watch it again because he it, it's one of these things where you can just tell there's a lot of passion put in this. Same thing here. There's a lot of passion put in this. And I think the line that you were thinking of... Uh, from what I understand, is this line that uh, Gosling delivers, which is Hollywood. He's referring to Hollywood. Is they worship everything but value nothing, and that was the line that I think really just kind of explains this. Really, the uh, whole mindset and in tr- and kind of points us towards the what uh, Chazelle was getting at towards this with this film is that if you don't have passion behind your filmmaking, then what's the point? And we get
0: one of the best musical sequences. In- Definitely of this century and maybe of the past, gosh, I don't know, 40 years, maybe the past 50 years. It's just we haven't seen something so wonderful with uh, a musical sequence like this of the Hollywood in the background with the sunset. And they're like, not much to look at, is it? Yep. (laughs) I've seen better. It's just so ironic how that is because it is a beautiful sunset and it's a real sunset. That is not CGI. People said, is that CGI? And it's kind of interesting because Chazelle and his like set designer, they said they wanted these backgrounds to, they're real, but they almost wanted them to have the look fake. Mm-hmm. And that's because in the old musicals, the backgrounds were pretty much always fake. It was always on a set. Right. And he wanted it to have that look, but nevertheless, it was real. And we hear um, Sebastian sing for the first time. 30 minutes into the movie right and it's just really well done all one shot of course uh dance sequence it's it's just so wonderful i just can't praise it enough but i love how it ends with this dab of realism breaking in the cell phone rings yeah life moves on there's other things
1: to do uh it was just perfect how it ended that way yeah and i really really like this scene because they i know i read in some of the background info they only had a short window of time this is called i think think it's called like the magic hour there in la uh they only had a certain amount of time took them two days to film this i think they did over like eight takes um and they i know that they was accounted that uh, stone herself was very passionate and was very ready to go and even though she messed up, she would give it back up and start over and be ready to do it again as soon as possible. And they did, and this is one of those, I think this movie was shot in 40 days uh, when it was all said and done, at least with the primary production part of it, or primary filming part. But yeah, this scene is very, very, very good because it, once again, it just kind of goes to show we get that tap dancing thing from a guy in Madeline again, which uh, is kind of a big thing in a couple of sequences there, especially the last se- one of the last songs in the, in the movie, which is where they kind of have this tap dance in the restaurant. Whereas in this movie, they incorporate that, but it's between the two of them and they're talking. Uh, essentially, the whole song is about uh, too bad this night is so perfect. We could be in love, but we're not. And I love that because it's playing with your expectations as to what a, a movie like this should go like. And that's kind of the beauty of it is that that will take these expectations more than one time and subvert them and say, well, that's not what's actually going to happen because that's not actually what happens. This is what happens. And the two get on each other for a long time. This is kind of the first moment where they begin to actually connect. And even though they're kind of going back and forth and bantering a lot, you get this sense of... Uh, you get a sense of oneness between them as they dance, and they're able to read each other, and all those kinds of, and I'll do all kinds of things. It's a really, really well choreographed dance, and of course you get the, you get the main like stance they have when they're facing each other, and they're on one foot, and their arms are flying out, with a lamp in the background. Of course, this movie loves lamps. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is a great musical number. Once again, yeah, all done in one shot. I think the only one that's not in one shot is somebody in the crowd. That's the only one that is not done in basically in one take with no cuts in it at all
0: yeah and it's funny because those expectations are sub uh they are subverted it kind of like builds you up and then you're like wait what and then it kind of builds you up wait what and i will say upon first viewing that was really surprising and shocking especially how the movie ends because i didn't see it i didn't see it coming on second viewing you see it coming on third viewing It all like you just see more and more and you're like, wow, everything is so plain. It's so clear. I understand it now and I appreciate what he's doing because in a way it is it is kind of dealing with this like romanticism. But at the same time, it's anti romanticism Mm -hmm. where instead of, you know, oh, just follow your heart and all your dreams will come true. Well, yeah, but everything comes with trade offs, or that's just not how life works. Life has different paths where it's just not always going to work out the way you think it will, nor should it always.
1: Right. Right. And this is also part where I kind of break in with my story with the girl that I was with at the time, at the time when I, before we actually began dating, she was like dating. she was actually dating another guy and she kind of wanted to get out of it. And then I came and I came along and that was more or less just her incentive to get out of their relationship even more so than before. And this is one of those scenes where I'm just like, okay, this is kind of weird because in a couple of scenes after this, that same thing plays out. She, uh, Gosling invites her to go see Rebel Without a Cause of the Rialto, which I did get, recently get to see in the theater, which was very, very good. Uh, but despite that, that is one thing that in this movie, I was like, okay, that's kind of weird. I mean, it's not necessarily accurate to how I per- how I have what happened to me, but at the same time, weird that this is a thing. And this is something that kick at some points will come up and I'll be like, this is scarily accurate, Compared, to, I mean, of course, not completely accurate, but it's like it's scary how accurate this movie is to what I experienced in my own life. This is one of those moments where I'm just like, that's odd. And right before they do see Rebel Without a Cause, they are at the
0: Lighthouse, which is a famous old LA jazz club, and Chazelle is really excited to shoot there. And it's funny though because. He is trying to Sebastian is trying to get Mia to appreciate jazz, Mm -hmm. yet he won't let her listen to it. And he's kind of contradicting himself. I I didn't realize this until Chazelle brought it up. He said, Sebastian's doing what he criticizes other people for doing is um, instead of taking the time to sit there, enjoy it, and listen to it, and appreciate it, he's talking over it. Right. And I just thought, wow, I never thought about that. That is so funny.
1: That is interesting. I guess I never thought about that. I mean, he is just (laughs) so passionate about jazz, and he just wants to talk about it and all this kind of stuff. And I love how she talks about elevator jazz. And he's like, what? What? (laughs) He's just so confused. Uh, Yeah, this is a great scene. This Once again, I, I do like how Chazelle is kind of furthering his explanation as to why he loves jazz so much and how it needs to be saved. And at first, when I first watched it, and uh, I was like, I hope the whole movie isn't like this, because we got this in Whiplash. Luckily, this is like, this is one of the only, like this is the only scene where this, this conversation ever happens, where it's like, Jazz is dying. And then that kind of just moves on from there. I mean, of course, it still builds up as to how important it is, but it never really preaches it to you, like, this is why Jazz is dying. We have to save it. It's, they take that idea, Jazz, and they incorporate it into the movie to make the story flow, not the other way around. Yes, they do. uh Yeah, once again, this is obviously
0: Chazelle kind of putting in his message there of jazz dying, and this mm-hmm. is why we need to appreciate it. We've got this before we get it, but he does something a little different with it. So right. talking about being a revolutionary but still traditionalist, and how do we strike that balance with different art forms and things like that? I think it's handled uh, very well and. I will say, I don't know if it's my favorite scene because the other scene before it that we just talked about was so well done, but this very small city of stars scene out on the pier. Oh man, it's just this gym placed right here in the middle of the
1: movie and I love it so much. Oh, and it looks gorgeous too because the the lamps are very much for Sebastian. Uh, A lot of lamp, like imagery and stuff is usually incorporated with with him and we get this whole scene where he talks about the city of stars and of course this whole song is about is this something that's actually going to happen or is it just going to fly away is this am i actually going to pursue this dream or of this girl or that i just met or is it just not going to happen and of course he it's kind of it's kind of interesting because there's a couple walking on the bridge and he starts dancing with the wife <laughs> and the husband gets mad and all, all sorts of stuff Yes. It's a very yeah very small scene, but really, once again, this is what good musicals do. They don't just have musical numbers just to have musical numbers, but they make them a part of the story, where if if you pulled out one, you'll be missing serious information that is very important to the story. Once again, they do that here, just like a lot of older musicals have done, where the music is absolutely important, and you can't make the movie without that. Absolutely, and I think... Yeah, it's the the lines are very
0: poignant, talking about something wonderful or just, just another dream yeah. I can't make true. Because he feels like a failure, he's messed up in life so far, and he's wondering, will he do the same thing with their relationship? And I, I would say for me personally, this is the first time I warm up to Sebastian's character, or I, I actually just like his character. I'm more so invested in his character. He's been interesting, but he's been quite distant quite kind of hard-edged about everything can't take a joke right and that's just a part of his personality which is unique but the way he is able to the way ryan gosling is able to portray it and bring this warmth to it especially this side of him he doesn't really show when other people are around but he becomes that way with mia uh this is a really great scene for those yeah. reasons
1: yeah and, and for me too it's i remember i had to kind of have a long conversations with my mom about this girl that I wanted to date at the time, and this is one of those things where I'm just like, "Well, is it a good idea to do that?" And of course, we had conversations all her stuff like that. But yeah, this is one of those scenes where I'm just like, eh, "That's weird," because it is just accurate enough, <laughs> to, you know, to make it just weird. So yeah.
0: Well, and then we also get, uh, after Rebel Without a Cause, they actually go there. Right. And that was so cool because it was shot exactly the same way with the car driving past and there's a pan to the right. Exactly. And uh, I love this very f- uh, fantasy scene where they are dancing in the City of Stars right. and in the observatory. And I said, you know what, they definitely took a cue from the end of Sleeping Beauty. Okay. Where they dance, um, where Sleeping Beauty and her prince, spoiler alert, get together, they win. <laughs> yeah. they But they kind of dance into the clouds and dance into the sky just like this. Right. And uh, Chazelle was naming some inspirations, and Sleeping Beauty was one of them. Oh,
1: interesting. And
0: I was like, yes, I knew it. it. It had to be. So that was really cool how he took that from there.
1: Right. And I think this might be my favorite scene of the whole movie. One of my mm-hmm. favorite scenes of the whole movie. I would say with the exception of probably the ending, this is probably my favorite scene because – there are no words. There is, it is purely just visual storytelling. And it's so interesting because they watched this movie before it burned up and they're just like, let's go there. And so they more or less live out some of the some of the things that happened in the movie as they get there and this whole thing becomes like a fantasy of well we could be a thing you know and then they begin to more or less that's where they find their love for each other and they one of my favorite shots is them as a silhouette dancing as with behind the star or dancing in front of the stars as they approach this like sign everything it's it's such a gorgeous looking number there's no words it's all told through visuals and expression Very, very well done. I really, really, really enjoyed the scene. And, of course, they come back down where Sleeping Beauty stayed there. Right. Because it was a true
0: fantasy. They have to come back down eventually. But that doesn't mean their their love is coming down. But it, it nevertheless shows that that dreamlike
1: love and fantasy can't always stay there right right and we also should probably mention the fact that before the scene even happened she was on a date with her boyfriend greg ah which we i like how we get little information about (laughs) greg because she does not want to talk about him and he's not in front of uh gosling's character and
0: they've only been dating for a month
1: right so it's okay they broke up that quick (laughs) right right yeah she's this there i remember she and she's like hearing the song on the radio and she's like i I don't like him. I don't love him the way that I like Ryan Gosling. I don't like the way that I like Sebastian, mm-hmm. which is the reason why she runs off. And she goes, he touches his arm and says, I'm sorry. And then turns around and runs away. And we get the, of course, the main theme comes up at this point yes. when she's running off. And it's great, it's great. theme. Yep. And yeah, it's fantastic. And of course, we get this whole planetarium scene. <laughs> so good. So good. Really. This is one. Th- once again, this is one of my favorite scenes in this entire movie. And we're, what, halfway through at this point? Because mm-hmm. the movie... Uh, kind of has like this. I guess it it closes as in the circle to black, and then opens up in a vignette uh, as she writing down her script. I think it's in the summer now at this point.
0: Yeah, and we did get this in Whiplash, the changing of the seasons. Right. I don't think it was impactful as it is in this movie because they uh, it just kind of shows where they're at in life and how it kind of all comes full circle, but not at this place where they arrived it shows their progression but we're like well we we started apart but mm-hmm. we're going to kind of end apart in winter and but we've still progressed as people from there right. it's not this nihilistic like nothing ever changes and it's like despairing no right. no no it's not that at all right. um and i will say during the summer i really uh, uh, appreciated how the montage was depicted of them going on dates I actually love how it's depicted. I was able to relate with it quite a bit because there's this young, exciting love that's so true to life, and uh, just that essence, that capture
1: of going on those fun dates is captured really well. Yeah, yeah, and of course, there. This is the entire honeymoon phase, yeah, where yeah. everything is about the everything is about the other, and you're having a lot of fun, all, mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff. But of course, we'll learn here in a little bit, and a few scenes. If we're not gonna get there just yet, but we'll learn. The honeymoon phase doesn't last forever, and it's, it's once again, we kind of back into this very dreamlike aesthetic where she they're driving down the road, and she goes, ah, it's one way, and they back up, and this van is following them as they're driving backwards and he's driving forwards, and that's when we get the summer tag, of course, and then of course, yeah, have the entire montage of them building their relationship and doing different things and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, it's very, very dreamlike once again, but then reality sets in, and John Legend comes up and says, hey... I want you to be in my little jazz fusion combo thing. Mm-hmm. And at first, Sebastian says no. But then he decides to take it after overhearing a conversation with Mia and her mom as she kind of explains that, yeah, he's not has a steady job yet, but he's got money. And he kind of realizes that I probably should provide it for her, and which he yeah. does. Yeah, that that
0: was a good scene as well. And we also see this whole kind of like, love is blinded at first where they are closing their eyes, kissing while he's driving. Yep. So he's literally has his eyes closed while they're kissing. And then she says wrong way. And so, uh, that could be taken as a bit of a hint that this, it seems really nice at first, but there's some things that aren't going to work out. They think it is. And I do love how it shows the water spot. Um, now this is jumping to in their apartment, in the apartment, Mia is trying to convince her mom that her new boyfriend is not a bum. Mm -hmm. And he's looking at the water spot saying, you know what? This, I don't want to live here the rest of my life. I need to take care of my lady, you know, show her parents that I can do it and also prove it to myself. And he does that by going to John Legend's character, Keith. Right. And joining his band, The Messengers. And it's uh, leading up to this point um, where... Mia comes home to Sebastian playing uh, City of Stars, and there's like this beautifully lit seafoam green Mm -hmm. in the background. And it was really interesting. Uh, Why? Because it wasn't originally that color. Oh, interesting. And neither was she originally wearing that
1: purple dress. Interesting.
0: Chazelle said, okay, the night before shooting this scene, I was watching Vertigo. Okay. And it's towards the end of the movie. With Jimmy Stewart and Kim Novak and in Jimmy, well, in Kim Novak's apartment, there's this same exact green. Kim Novak is wearing a purple dress. And I'm like, hmm, why don't we put that in the movie? So then Chazelle calls up his people and he's like, quick, we need to change it. (laughs) We need to change everything. Change it to seafoam green and change her dress to purple. Right. And then they shot it like that and it worked so
1: well. That's so interesting. I didn't know that. Wow.
0: (laughs) I, I love it. He's just watching Hitchcock and he's like, yeah
1: change everything They must (laughs) we must yeah and i I love this little montage here too because uh, well okay we'll talk about that in a second because i do want to talk about the conversation that uh sebastian and keith care that keith have which is jazz is changing and it's dying but we have to change the times and he points out he's like how can you be somebody a revolutionist if you're such a traditionalist how can you still try and change the world when you're doing things that have been done over and over and over again, and you're not improving with it. It's such an interesting idea. Of course, this is kind of talking once again to Hollywood and how, yes, all movies exist, and we can take those movies, we can watch them, and we've still kind of improved on them, but at the same time, you know, we have to improve on what is already there. We can't just take something and then continue to use it and use it and use it. We have to continue to upgrade it, or we have to continue to do do new things with it. Which is what I really, really enjoy this conversation that they have. And this film proves that. Right. Because this is
0: still following the story beats of those older movies and musical numbers and whatnot. But it's, like I said, it has this tinge of realism to it. It does something new with it in a really fresh, exciting way how it comes back around uh, just like that. And it's really uh, poignant because Keith tells Sebastian, Jazz is dying because of you. Mm Mm-hmm. And Sebastian is so set in his ways. he is not going to change. Even when Mia says, I created this mock-up. Why don't you call it Sebs? It's catchy. And he says, no, it has to be called Chicken on a Stick. And that just shows. And he's like, oh, and it has to be at the Van Beek. Right. But come to find out, he relents. He does call it Sebs. And it's not at the Van Beek. And that does show that he does still hang on to Jazz because in the way that he loves it he doesn't have the messenger style of jazz playing at his club but right. nevertheless he did make those changes to bring more people in so they could love it and yeah it's a it's a packed house there at the end so oh yeah, it, yeah. that that is a really poignant conversation and uh yeah the next scene you said is um when they do sit down and sing city of stars yeah. together and that was them
1: live singing right right yeah and it's this scene is so interesting because you would think, I mean, we've kind of had a few moments where reality is beginning to set in, and they try to rekindle this, this fantasy once more, and then you get more reality out of it. Mia quits her job, Seb signs the contract, and now he's going to do, he's always on, essentially, a record label for the long haul, as he states later on. And they're doing, and Mia's... Moving out and moving in with him, she is, or I guess at this point she has, and she's writing down, uh, she's beginning to write her play, what she's been wanting to, kind of wanting to do her entire life, is essentially a story about her own life, which is, once again, how Shizelle did it uh, for himself. A lot of his movies, once again, as we said earlier, are stories of his own life, just told in a much different way. We get kind of this reality setting in, and the music is interesting because it's not necessarily happy. It's kind of melancholic. It's kind of between happiness and and happiness and sadness. It's kind of like well, we have to do this. Uh, that's just the way that things need to go if we want to pursue our dreams. But at the same time, we come to find out later is that actually what they want to do? At least in Sebastian's case. Right, and it's all visually told at them
0: at the piano. But then it cuts to into the future mm-hmm. and shows how they will be apart. They'll be growing apart. And then it, of course, it comes back to them at the right together and it's like they don't they're so excited they're so happy but they don't realize it yet yeah, this is what's going to happen
1: right and they're like more or less just a bit confused i guess that this is happening when it shouldn't be this should be something that is something that they're presuming should be really easy shouldn't be shouldn't be as hard that they would assume but of course it is because that's not what actually happens in the real world it's something much much different and i do think the next uh scene at the Messengers concert is,
0: I do like the song a -hmm. lot. It's pretty fun and upbeat, but uh, just their facial expressions, how they're telling how they feel without actually coming out and saying it. Right. And we do get a conversation later, which is incredibly written. Right. But it's really important to notice uh, Mia's facial features, especially because she seems happy for him. The same time she seems like, whoa, he's kind of being a sellout with Mm -hmm. all of this. And then, of course, there's also this, I would say, underlying jealousy of how she is now someone in the crowd right. to him. Right. She's pushed back to the crowd. Um, she's kind of lost some importance in his life, she feels. And it, he's getting big. He's being appreciated for his talents, and she's not. And I think that's brought up in a really organic way, how in some ways she's she is like, yeah, I do care for you. This isn't your dream. But then at the same time... There has to be this like underlying, just very small jealousy of how their lives are just not working out how she thought they
1: would. Exactly. And, uh, and even more so, she's also concerned because she knows that he loves jazz. But this, to her and to him, is not the jazz that he likes to play. This is... Very modern, very, very modern, if you can even call it jazz still. It's more of just your regular rock concert, and they have backup singers, and they have dancers on the stage, and she's like, what is going on? This is not what Seb wanted to do, right. and she knows this, and she's at the same time jealous that he's able to get this recognition that he's been looking for. It's not the recognition that the that dream is supposed to lead them to, that they would think it's something that he just has to do to provide for the family, and it, this kind of also goes with the baby boomers because the way that they have always kind of viewed how you raise a kid or how you or you get a job is that you just have to you just have to do something that will get you a lot of money, regardless of if you like it. That's something you just have to do because at the time that was how the society kind of viewed that kind of a thing, and of course that's carried on until this more modern age but this is kind of the same idea where it's just like you sometimes have to do things that you're not happy about just to get to the thing that you're happy about. And that is kind of how their conversation goes. And it
0: is clearly no coincidence. It's not obvious, but it's no coincidence that we have this abrupt cut to fall. Right. It is fall season, but it It is the fall of their relationship. Right.
1: Right. And of course, fall is also very, very symbolic of things beginning to die. Yep. And once again, yeah, the relationship falls at this point.
0: Absolutely. And the kind of evolution of this scene where they come back to the apartment. He has surprised her and cooked her dinner. She hasn't heard from him in months. Mm -hmm. And how they're talking about it. I think this is just one of the best scenes of cinema. of Dialogue. And... Uh, You should also definitely pay attention to how the uh, scene is shot because it starts with kind of more wide shots of their like bodies eating at dinner. And then as the scene escalates, it just is close ups of their faces. And uh, Chazelle specifically said in the commentary, even if there was a better shot, like a wider shot, they were not going to use it because Mm -hmm. they had to keep it at that intense level of just their faces.
1: So well done. Yeah. And another interesting thing about the scene too, is that they wanted to get this dialogue as realistic Mm -hmm. as possible. And they do a really good job of this because one of the things about just kind of natural conversation is that people will begin a sentence, stop and then start over and do something else. Or they'll interrupt themselves to kind of further explain what they're trying to Mm -hmm. get at. That's what Sebastian does here. he will do a a couple of times. He will kind of like say something, but then kind of revert to what he was trying to get at in a different way. But at the same time, you also have a Sea Star- of Stars the theme playing in the background, but in a major key. And then once the song ends, the thing, essentially the relationship is more or less doomed. I wouldn't say maybe not doomed at that point, but it definitely has had a hit taken to it. And this whole scene is fantastic because it's scary accurate uh, to some of the conversations that I know that I've had at dinner a couple of times. Uh, it's it, it's sorry. This conversation is once again. I think that one of the things that also makes it realistic is that they actually had uh, Mia or they actually had Emma Stone and Garan Gazing like talk and stuff and like do regular things uh, to make this dialogue as realistic as it possibly could be. They try to make it as authentic as they could.
0: Yes, and from what I understood, um, bits of it were improvised just a little bit mm-hmm. because they did want those genuine emotions and reactions. And I know uh, Gosling was opposed to delivering the line. Um, uh, The line was like, since when do you care what people think? And she said, and then he says, but you're an actress. Mm -hmm. And he did not want to say that. Yeah. He said, I just feel like that's going too far, but it just came out. Yeah. And then afterward, he was like a little frustrated. He said, you got your line, didn't you? And he's like, it just came out. Mm -hmm. And it was so organic, though. And I think we've all had conversations like this. And even if you're not in a relationship, there's been someone in your life where you've had a dispute with them about something. And you take something the wrong way. You interpret it wrong because you're being really sensitive about your feelings or you think they think that. You're not doing good enough or right. not worthy enough or something. Right. It's just all portrayed so well in the dialogue and how it escalates. And I'm like, wow, that's so amazing because you could just spend time dissecting that scene and seeing how a conversation escalates and an argument begins and right. I wrote down most of the scene. I won't read it to you <laughs> right, listeners. Right. But just for my own thoughts for this, I it's just so well done and it is really hurtful there at the very end. And it's oh, just yeah. it's just like self destructive. Um, how it's just really unfortunate but it does show their incompatibility i think and at the very end of the scene what do we get a warning bell the food is on fire. It's an actual warning bell showing the dinner is ruined and pretty much their relationship is ruined and this warning bell is going off. And it right. just works on so many levels that way.
1: Right. And I would even say this is probably the one, probably the most realistic scene of the entire movie. Mm-hmm. Once again, because some of these songs are improvised, but they wanted to make it as authentic as possible. I think they did a really good job at that. Once again, this is the most pivotal moment in their relationship that kind of just leads down this slippery slope of things just go wrong and then the next couple of scenes they that's it they break up
0: they do break up her show doesn't go the way she wants he's mm-hmm. he skips it he picks the photo shoot
1: which he doesn't even
0: care to go to
1: right i think i think that's more of a thing that he just couldn't get out of he just totally forgot that it was a thing and then next thing he knows he once again the same thing happens to him as what happened to mia he plays the main theme and then realizes i need to be there yeah, you can definitely tell he's not happy about the
0: photo shoot, but you also have to realize he didn't make it a priority to tell Keith, I can't do the photo shoot mm-hmm. in a week or two, I've got this play. So it just shows that they're not he's not really thinking about her. He's not putting her before the band
1: or more so
0: before himself.
1: Right. Right. And even that too, he also just, as you say, forgot and thought that it was next week. And then yeah. at that point too, it might just even be too late that he can't back out because it is that day and they can't really reschedule it. Could be a number of different factors, but regardless of the fact, he makes it to the theater well after <laughs> the, the show is over. And even, and even though uh, we find out later that she gets, Somebody, a, a record, or not a record deal, but she gets a callback for her play. There is nobody there at the theater. And there is maybe six, maybe ten people or so in the seats. Uh, and she comes out, and that's when Gossin shows up. And she says, I can't pay back the theater because nobody showed up to my play. And mm-hmm. as as she stated earlier, which is interesting because it's kind of ironic, she says that if you do something that you're passionate about, people will show up. And nobody showed up to her thing that she was passionate about, but everyone showed up to Gosling's thing and he could care less about what music he's playing. Yeah, that's a that's a great point.
0: And it's just really telling because he doesn't say I love you. It's just not very emphatic. He just says, "Let me make it up to you." Mm-hmm. How in the world? Does he have a time machine? Right. How do yeah. how do you make that up to somebody? It's, and and she yeah. says you she says like you can't. It's over and she leaves. And I I really think his response is pathetic mm-hmm. because it's just not genuine. It's not. It, right. It's just uh, cuz he doesn't even say I love you. They said it earlier. They said it in the good times, but they can't say it in the bad times. Clearly they're not supposed to be together. Right.
1: Then right. And Mia heads home. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because she goes back home and she's like, I'm just going to give up on my dream. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's not going to work out. Uh, and she really wants to. Or she's think, <laughs> thinking about just kind of going back to school and doing things right. to get her life on that normal track of what everybody else does. And he says, you're a baby. Yeah. You're crying like a baby right now. Right. That right. scene was great
0: when she said, I'm, I'm going to give up. I'm going to do this. And he goes, What? What? And that whole scene was great. And I, I did love how he was that motivation to bring her back. Right. But nevertheless, he wasn't the anchor that was going to stay in her life. Uh, he They were both like served that purpose in each other's lives mm-hmm. to help help each other realize their dreams. It's just they weren't a part of that. Right. Now, that doesn't mean there's a, not a lot of emotionality built into that and feelings. But nevertheless, that wasn't how it was meant to be
1: right and i really like this scene too because it this is i think is one of the better scenes where it really shows their chemistry Mm -hmm. as he just like saying no you have to go you have to do this this is what you've been looking for your entire life and you're just going to give up on it this is your one chance and as we've kind of found out you kind of have to be lucky in la to get noticed because otherwise people won't notice you and you'll never find what you're looking for if you aren't lucky. You don't get aren't in the right place at the right time. There is some truth to that somebody in the crowd song, mm-hmm. as much as me doesn't want to. As much as me doesn't want to believe it. But regardless, yeah, he uh, convinces her to go and do this audition. Uh, which, which I think we probably should talk about that scene because it's probably my favorite musical number in the entire in the entire movie.
0: Yes, we have to talk about her solo and. Well, okay, I'll, I'll save that thought for here in just a minute, but it's so beautiful, and the way it starts out, uh, she she's kind of not really sure how to begin, where to go with it, mm-hmm. and it's kind of faltering to begin with, but then it just really gets into it, and bec- she becomes so passionate about it, and it's a sad song, but yeah. it's also a commentary on their, their relationship, and even just their life, because uh, she says... It's a dream. We make a mess of our lives, but we would do it all again because our choices have led us to this moment in our lives. And that's definitely pivotal Pivotal for these two characters.
1: Right. And it's also interesting, too, because this also, once again, plays into Damien Chazelle's life Mm. as he talks about how she's essentially recounting the stories of her aunt. Which is not necessarily a story that she made up. She's just recounting those memories. This is what Chazelle has done in the past, at least two movies. In some of Guy Madeline, he's always recounted from past experience and told them in a story. And from what I understand, and from what I've also experienced in my own life, one of the best ways to tell a story is to pull from personal experience, Mm -hmm. and because that makes it as authentic as possible. This is what Chazelle has done in these two movies, which I think is very, very interesting. And this is one of the most personal songs. I know it is the most personal song in this entire soundtrack because it's a solo that almost akin to "City of Stars," but it's very stripped down and there's very little instrumentation. It's more of just her singing and her having the solo. And once again, all done all done in one shot. As as the camera, the lights dim and the camera slowly moves up on her and then spins around and goes back to where it was originally. And it's so interesting to see that. And we never really get any confirmation until five years later that anything happened with the solo or uh, with this audition. But we know that she kind of just gave it her all in this moment. It's really beautiful. Oh, it is. It's just Oscar worthy. Mm -hmm. And did she win the Oscar that year?
0: Yeah. She got best actress. Yep. That Mm -hmm. is definitely why she absolutely deserved it. And this scene, I think cemented that. Oh yeah. And yeah, it's, it's definitely not till five years later that really shocked me. But right before that, Uh, we get Sebastian and Mia on a park bench.
1: Yep. I said that exact same
0: thing. (laughs) And I'm, I'm pretty sure that was on purpose. Oh yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And they're really, um, asking like, where are we, what are we doing? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: He says, follow your dream. He says, I'm going to do my own thing here in LA. And they said, I guess we're going, we're going to have to wait and see. Right. And she says, I'm always going to love you. And he says, I'm always going to love you too. I got choked up Mm -hmm. at this scene. It's hard not to get choked up because they will, I know they will always love each other, but it's not the husband wife. Right. Love. It is this, uh, you know, friend love between friends. And that's really what it's come to this realization of. But if you don't realize that to begin with, and you think, Oh man, they are these lovers that need to be together. Mm -hmm. That's just not uh, the path that
1: they're on. And that's pretty obvious. Right. That's right. so emotional. Right. And this scene too, this is the one that I think they also want to, one of the scenes that got to me really the most in terms of everything else, because I have had this conversation mm-hmm. and I remember exactly where it was and what was said in this conversation. And the girl that I was with, we decided after taking a break, we decided, well, we're going two different ways. Mm-hmm. So there's really no reason for us to try and stay together because it's just going to make things worse. And we said we'll always remember what uh, what we had together, but at the same time, we can't stay together because that will just make things for the worse if we do that. Once again, and this happens, really similar to the conversation that happens in the movie than the one that I had as well. Oh yeah,
0: and then it's five years later, and the whole I'm just shocked, especially mm-hmm. the first time I watched it. Yeah, her. yeah. I'm floored. I'm sitting here and I'm like, what? What is happening? And especially when she comes home. Mm -hmm. And you think she's coming... um, I thought she was coming home to him, and she doesn't. It's another man. Another
1: man and um, a kid. A new husband, a
0: daughter. He has uh, Sebs, and his sister is now married with uh, their son. And yeah, it's all... Wow, it it floors you, honestly, especially the first time you see it. Oh, yeah. And Chazelle just completely subverts your expectations, because I can't think of a musical... Where because this definitely follows the musical pattern mm-hmm. where there's these two people i never really heard of each other they come together um, they don't really like each other to begin with but then they like each other and then there's some big kind of falling out the one that I can really only think of that I can definitely see it following this pattern just off the top of my head is White Christmas with Bing Crosby um, This exact same thing happens to them but then at the very end of White Christmas, of course, it's a white Christmas. It's a happy right, ending. Right. This isn't the case. It is, I will still argue it is a happy ending, mm-hmm. but it's not the traditional happy ending that you'd expect.
1: Right. This stays exactly with what Chazelle has been trying to do the entire time, subverting expectations. For mm-hmm. This is what you're used to seeing. This is how it actually works in real life, and this is something that I'm really glad he did not try and shy away from. Because one of the studios says you have to change this ending; you ah. cannot have them fall apart in the end. Oh. And he said, "Fine, and I'm leaving," and he left. And but I, even then, this is one of those things. When I was in the theater, I remember saying to myself audibly, "No way!" When <laughs> she walks home, and she's with, and she has her own, and she has a husband that's not Seb, yeah. and she has a daughter. And or she's just a kid and she's an actress. she just got back from Paris. And I was like, there's, I'm just like, no way. And when we get to the scene, and we'll get there in a second uh, with them in the bar or with, with them at Seb's, I was wondering, is this the real ending? Is the real ending that they're, fan- that we, they're fantasizing? Is this what actually happened? Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about it in a sec. But I remember this scene got me in the theater. And then I showed it to one of my friends, Ben, and it got to this scene. He goes, and he actually got it, He goes, no, like, just so disappointed and, like, just so distraught that this entire movie had built up their relationship. Yep. And then we see the future five years after they had this conversation outside of the uh, uh, the planetarium and they're not together. How in the world? And that's – yeah, I, I remember when my family watched it and they loved
0: it up until that point and then they completely turned on it. Yep. And I said, <laughs> okay, you need to rewatch it because – and I think it's just this process of self-denial mm-hmm. and – you just have to come to terms with it like they did because they were also in this process of self-denial until they finally broke up and then he came back and their relationship was very different when he came back to her city in boulder nevada and took her back to hollywood Mm -hmm. it had changed you could tell it had changed just by how they interact and treat each other and it is kind of that process of self-denial where it's like in a relationship even where you know it's not the right move and i'm sure you can attest to this but then you have to come to terms with it and that's exactly what they do
1: doesn't mean it's not hard but it's necessary right yeah and this movie this is more or less just saying that yeah they had all this good time together and there's no way that they can just be disappointed that this relationship happened because Mm -hmm. without this relationship they would have not gotten they would have not gotten to the place that they are at in five years which is they have finally gotten their dreams what they've always been building up to but they're not together and that's like the whole point of the movie is Mm -hmm. that they're not supposed to be together for them to be happy they are they've gotten what they were pursuing but they needed each other to get there yes and when she sees the sign that
0: seb's and Mm -hmm. it dawns on her and then when he gets up on the stage and there is this perfect still shot close-up of each of their faces Right. Oh, I was choked up. It was so beautiful and it was so perfect. The expressions on their faces, how they realize it's like, wow. Of course, he's probably seen her movies, you know, and they know about it, but they just parted ways and like never spoke again until this perfect moment when they came back together. And I would say this is kind of closure. Oh, yeah. Probably for them. Oh, yeah.
1: And yeah, this entire sequence, it's once again, we dive as I think as deep as uh Chazelle has ever gone with visual storytelling mm-hmm. with this epilogue sequence where they imagine what their life use was like back in the day and then what would have been if they had stayed together and as they get to see these like home videos of them having a kid and living still in LA and she's all this kind of stuff. and it's like and then it, it, of course, the best part about it is that it's all on like a home video. It's on like a Super 8 projector screen. And of course that isn't what happens. That's not the reality of the situation. And it's just like it's so heartbreaking to see this because the music is so fant so fantasy like and really really embraces this musical tone and then just slowly shifts into what really happened at the very end. You see the home videos and then it fades back to them uh, and what's what would have been that night had they still stayed together and then it fades into reality. Mm-hmm. It's oof. It's it's something that uh, this is probably the scene that got to me the most in the theater because, once again, it had been no more than a couple weeks, maybe, that we had broken up, this girl and I. And seeing this scene killed me. Oh, I can definitely understand why. And
0: I think it's also very interesting. It's something that you wouldn't catch on your first watch or even the subsequent watches, uh, but you if you pay very close attention, and I only realized it by listening to the commentary – but when it's their first, quote, date, right before they go to the lighthouse, when they're on the studio lot. Mm-hmm. And they're looking into the um, the studio uh, where there's like a set inside there and there's people working on the set. That was actually some of the real um, crew members working really? on it. But that is the set that we will see in this fantasy sequence. Okay. So it's almost like they're looking in on their future, but they right. don't even realize it. This is where they're going, but they don't know it. Interesting. So poignant how they chose to do that. Yeah, yeah. That's so cool. How that's the real set, and that's where they're going to end up. But definitely getting choked up, um, especially when uh, they sit down to watch these old home videos of their lives that never were. Mm -hmm. In City of Stars is playing, and I'm just oh gosh, I'm trying not to lose it. And this is like my fourth time watching it, yeah. and I'm still yeah. like, Ooh. Yeah, but uh, it, it's very interesting. Um, it's I will say it's uh this fantasy is uh is so wonderful, it's so beautiful, of uh, this fantasy of Hollywood, Paris, and a city of stars. And we also get the boy with the red balloon.
1: Right. Yeah. There's all kinds of <laughs> references to cinema here as well, because I mean, it just makes sense. They're in LA. But yeah. You get boy with the red balloon. You get a couple other things mm-hmm. here that are just references to old cinema. And how once again we get that old and new kind of a thing where they have they watch their thing, they watch their lives on a Super 8 home video. Mm-hmm. And then when it transitions to reality, it's not so much this fantasy anymore. It's they've they realize at this moment that this was the best choice mm-hmm. was to break it off. And I was
0: really hoping because there is this uh, trumpet solo. So good. I was hoping it was going to be the guy from Guy and Madeline. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah, that'd
1: be so cool. That'd be kind of cool. It did remind me of Guy and Madeline, oh, yeah, this trumpet solo. I mean, it's not as long as that one from Guy and Madeline, mm-hmm. but it is still a really good trumpet solo. I still get shivers listening to it. Is that good? But once again, this is a wonderful
0: scene because we have an idea of how we want our lives to turn out, mm-hmm. which is, it shows that that's how they wanted it to be, but it really works out that way. And what we desire isn't always what's best for us. Right.
1: Right. And that's the thing that killed me at the very end of this movie is that they're, wa- she's walking off. She's, she has to go back to what she's been doing. She has to continue. She can't just return. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that I really like about this ending is that they have one last glance and they just look at each other and they smile and they're it like, it's fine. You know, the, what happened sucks. Yes. But it was necessary and it's totally okay that this happened. And it was absolutely. Uh, It was absolutely necessary that this happened. And that's the thing that I think got to me the most because I was – because this ending especially, I was wondering if they were going to get back together and they never did. And once she walks off, he continues playing and starts the next piece. And he's like, we have to keep going. We can't stop life for this. We have to keep going. And then the movie just fades to black and you get the over – you get the distant shot of the night view of the city in the end. And this this destroyed me in the theater. So I'm just like, <laughs> oh, crap. Because at that point, I, it, of course, I was, I mean, to be fair, the relationship that I had ended fine. It was nothing. There weren't really that many emotions flying around, at, the, at least when we had the conversation. It was very straightforward. It was very adult. Yeah. But, of course, it still affected me. Oh, sure. And seeing this ending in this movie, just like, yeah, the three years that you spend with her is very, very important. You should never let go of that. But you should still move forward with your life because there's more to look forward for. Never forget what you had, but at the same time, it was necessary that that happened, and it's okay that it ended." And I was like, crap, great. <laughs> so this ending destroyed me because it more or less taught me that, yes, the relationship that I have, once again, is very necessary, but at the same time, it's okay that it ended, even though, I'm, even though we were getting to the point where marriage was becoming maybe a thing that we should probably start thinking about. And of course, we never got to that point, but that's something that seeing this movie and how it subverted my expectations numerous times and then got to the end. And it's just like, it's okay. It really helped me with that moment with not only, not only understand where I'm supposed to go next, but also come to terms into where I should sit in this relationship. And this movie really helped me with that. And I cannot give it enough praise to think that just for cinema in general, like this is what I've always been looking for as something that could do this. Oh yeah, and just like
0: you said, that little smile they give each other—it tells it all. Mm-hmm. That's what makes this movie redeeming, is the smile. Right. I would say because if they would have left in like tears or something, right, right, and it would have been like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. But it didn't. It was on a, yes, it was this closure. It was understanding. In in some ways, it was coming of age.
1: Oh yeah, actually, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this whole there's one of the big themes here is also identity with at least with Mia because she does express. I want to find myself in a, one, of the, one of the songs that think I see. I think that might have been somebody in the crowd. But once again, we are, our observation or our expectations are observed, are, 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 what's the word I'm thinking of? Our, ob- our expectations are subverted. There it is. They're subverted because this movie's name is La La Land. And this movie more or less just says the end, La La Land doesn't exist. And right. that's like the whole point of the movie is that, there is a reality to it you can't just go in expecting that things are going to go swimmingly and perfectly like all these movies have talked about in the past so this is what really happens
0: it's basically a more positive mulholland drive
1: essentially yeah yeah
0: it's pretty much a less heavy mulholland drive where it all seems so perfect and wonderful and it's like wait it's actually not that Mm -hmm. uh so very very similar in that way but different yes very very different quite
1: a bit different (laughs) one's very very one's david lynch so of course it's very very different
0: (laughs) oh i still love mahal and drive though oh yeah absolutely i think i gave it a 10 out of 10 because Mm -hmm. i was like oh man this is so good but alan what is your rating and recommendation for
1: la la land i it's kind of hard to say any more that i haven't already said but i feel like i could still talk about this movie for ages because this is the movie that really brought me into what personal filmmaking is because not only did it was it very personal for Damien Chazelle and how he recounts events in his own life and how these things happen and how, what reality really is not just this fantasy that a lot of movies tend to think. It really gives us what reality really is and saying, this is the fantasy, but that's not how it's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. And seeing that in my own life no more than a couple of weeks prior to this movie's release date and having to really push to get to the theater to see it i could not have been the, one of the best theater experiences i think i've ever had because in, in it is never there's never been a movie that has affected me in such a way like this movie has because like i mentioned at many points in this podcast there are conversations and plot points that are pretty accurate to what happened with me and especially this ending it took what I was it took what I had been feeling and then says it's fine and this is one of the things that I've always looked for in cinema is something that can teach me a lesson that I need in that moment which is what Lala did to me this may is now currently this is one of my favorite movies of all time but only be, really because not only because but really because of what happened to me in the moment that it came out this movie could not have come out in a more perfect time. Once again, kind of how the movie talks about how you kind of have to get lucky. I was just lucky enough to see this movie in the theater at the time when this entire relationship that I had been in for three years, mind you, had finally uh, did be finished and had to be had to be done. And it's something that I can never express my appreciation for enough. Now, of course, Damien Chazelle didn't know this. Duh. It was just kind of a coincidence, I guess. That there is a movie that he created about his own life that also spoke to me on such a spiritual and grounded level that I couldn't, I couldn't believe what I was seeing when I first saw it the first time. And that's why I've seen it seven times and I scoured the internet for that steelbook because I needed that steelbook because I needed to learn, I wanted to learn more about what else is in this movie. When it comes to recommendation, uh, this might be the first that we do this, but I think I'm going to have to give it an 11 out of 10. But all, all, solely on the basis that it has affected me in such a, such an interesting way that I cannot express enough. This is not going to be leveled for everybody. And I hope this is, we talked about this a while back that we will have created this rating because it's something that we need to hold for something special. This may not be my favorite movie for all of t- uh, forever. And that's fine because I'm not going to be holding on to this relationship as much as I used to in the past, or I will need to move on eventually. But this t- movie taught me so many things about what it means to move on from a relationship, especially one that was very important to me, that I had, that I, it's something that is engraved itself into my own mind and I cannot express enough. Of course it gives the highest of recommends. I can't, and there's no way I can't. This is a very personal movie for my own self and there's something I can't express enough with human language, how much it has spoken to me. And as many times as I've watched it, I've watched it so many times and I still get more out of it. I can't give La, La Land enough praise, from the story to the
0: direction, singing and dancing, acting, and Chazelle's love for film and music coming together in a perfect marriage of a romantic story with a realistic throughline that makes this not only one of the greatest romantic or musical films of all time, but just one of the greatest films of all time. La, La Land is perfect and I'm also giving it 11 stars Whoa. out of 10. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Just especially because of this conversation, I originally had it at a 10, but mm-hmm. talking through this, I'm like, you know what? There's no way I couldn't give this movie this highest honor of 11 stars out of 10 with, of course, my highest recommendation. Rarely has there been or will there be a film of such beauty and purity than La
1: La Land. Right. And it's kind of a funny thing because, okay, I on Spotify... I have this movie soundtrack playlist right and essentially I'll go through some of the tracks that I really really enjoy from some of my films, from, from the movies that I really really like uh, or just good tracks in general from movies and I'll just put them all in this playlist this is one this is so far the first and only time I have just added the entire album to my playlist because there is no song in here that I don't like and I could listen to the soundtrack for ages. And at one point, it was I was so obsessed with it that I had it was one like a once a day thing. I would listen to it because I would, it it had become an obsession. I don't do that as much anymore, but I still really, really, really enjoyed this music. And Justin Hurwitz, I think this is his finest work. Damien Chazelle, I think that this is his magnum opus as far as we've seen for both of them.
0: Well, listeners, thank you so much for joining us on our Damien Chazelle retrospective series. We have one more coming out, which will be First Man. I'm super excited to see what he can do, especially after this wonderful review of La La Land. So definitely make sure to join us uh, next week for First Man, where we will be discussing the film and uh if you liked this review please go to itunes give us a five star rating that will really help us get noticed by uh other people so they can also enjoy uh, discussing film with us as well make sure to like and subscribe on your favorite social media platforms those are all in the descriptions below for you to just click on and subscribe very easily also if you want more bonus podcasts if you just basically want to help support us and also get some really nice uh, stuff Uh, as well, then go ahead and click on that button that says uh, support silver screen guide and get some exclusive content. You will have access to uh, bonus podcasts, our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, film commentaries, Q and A's, all kinds of stuff. Starting for you know, just as much as a less than a Starbucks cup of coffee, you get all kinds of great content. So make sure to head over there and support Silver Screen Guide. Share it with your friends. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. Once again, thank you for joining us for our La La Land review. And make sure to come back next week for our final installment so far, at least I hope, in the Chazelle Retrospective Series for First Man. Thanks again, and we'll catch you next time.